Thinking Liberty, Episode 10. Welcome to Thinking Liberty, the podcast that explores lifestyles of freedom-minded individuals. Join us as we discuss work, hobbies, health, learning, and more while living a travel-orientated lifestyle. Be curious, be open, be inspired, be free. And now, here are your hosts, Zach and Sarah Varnell. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Thinking Liberty. We're coming to you again from our mobile studio currently parked in New Holland, Pennsylvania. I'm Zach. And I'm Sarah. And we are still at uh, the Red Run Campground in New Holland. We'll be here through the end of the week and then we'll be moving to uh, my aunt and uncle's um, for the next week and spending some time with them. And it's always fun staying in their backyard. Um, Red Run Campground, if you've never been to this area, is right in the middle of the Amish countryside, so it's really a fun place to stay. Uh, they've got a huge lake for fishing and paddle boats, and they've also got a creek that runs through. Uh, there's some spots that are right up on it, but even if you're right, not right next to it, you can easily walk to it and play around in it. Um, we actually tried to get Ollie to go for a swim in it. Um, he was not too happy with us, and in fact, he was um, trying to get to dry land, and he saw a spot that he thought was solid ground, and proceeded to splash right into the middle of a bunch of sludge. Yeah, it was just some soot or something floating on top of the water, and I guess to him it looked solid, so he just headed straight for it and jumped right into the water. But, um, yeah, Red Run has really been one of my favorite campgrounds, and I guess that's why we've now stayed here more often than any other place. Well, it also, you know, is because we have visited Pennsylvania more often, other than Georgia, um, where uh, our parents are. We came to Pennsylvania pretty frequently to visit family, too. So, um, since we know that Red Run's a great place to go, we pretty much book it every time we visit yeah although it'd be a whole lot harder to get up here and visit family if the camping experience wasn't also nice yeah that's very true but yeah it's really nice we love sitting outside at the picnic tables and you know doing our work throughout the day just sitting outside and next to the creek sometimes and it's usually pretty comfortable up here i know this time it's been hot and now that it's not hot it's raining so we haven't really been able to do it and it, but it's also nice to sit out there and just every now and then you see Amish buggies going down the road and things like that. So it's a really peaceful, nice campground. And it's nice to have a this sort of change of pace sometimes if you've been traveling hard and then you get to come here and kind of just relax. Yeah, and this place was booked up over the weekend uh, because of the 4th of July holiday. So um, there wasn't a single empty spot in the place. So it was very crowded and very busy. Um, yeah, it was the it most was still, packed I think I've seen any RV park. Yeah, but we still enjoyed our space and enjoyed our time. So, um, you know, it wasn't too bad. And now a lot of people have cleared out. So it's a lot more quiet and calm. Now we have it to ourselves. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, there might be 10 other people here but um it's it is a really nice place um another spot that we've stayed at has been beacon hill um the first time we were here we stayed a week at red run and then we moved to beacon hill for a week but now we typically stay red run and then just move to my aunt and uncle's um but it's definitely a good place to check out and stay at too um it's also still in the middle of the amish countryside uh one thing to keep in mind is that they do have an age requirement so no one under the age of 16 is allowed to stay there so no young children um and then it's just um 
it's still, like I said, in the middle of the Amish countryside. And in fact, when we were there, um, a young girl came by selling baked goods uh, from her farm. Yeah, and unfortunately, that was the one day that we didn't have any cash. I guess Sarah had gone a little too crazy at the yard sales. (laughs) I wouldn't say one day. We almost never carried cash, so don't blame me. (laughs) (laughs) I also remember seeing there the cutest thing. There was some uh, little Amish boy driving a tiny cart hooked to a pony up and down the street. Oh, yeah, that was And I guess that was like his version of learning to drive, even though he was all alone. So I guess he was just practicing, but I thought that was really neat, too. Yeah, um, and both of these parks are near some of the more touristy things that you can do in the area. Um, They're near several farmer's markets, they're near some theaters, um, and they're both near Kitchen Kettle Village. Um, It's kind of a little tourist destination, but it still has a lot of um, baked goods, jams, jellies, things like that from the local farms. Um, And there's also a lot of neat uh, antique stores and shops on the outskirts of Kitchen Kettle Village as well that are good to check out. Um, So it's it's definitely a good little uh, day trip to take, um, but do be prepared that it is a little cheesy and touristy. But it's still a lot of fun, and you will find a lot of good quality products. Yeah, a lot of good um, baked goods. Like, I like to go there and, you know, get whoopie pie or shoe fly pie or whatever they're calling it these days. And it's good stuff. It's not like they're mass producing that or anything. It's coming straight from the Amish farms, too. I remember coming up here a lot as a kid. Um, my mom's family is from here. Uh, so we would always try to come up at least once a year. And it's kind of a long drive from Georgia to Pennsylvania. So it would usually be dusk or dark when we would get here. And um, I would always see these candles, um, usually I would guess electric candles, in the whole windows of all of these type of colonial homes. And it was always just this reassuring, welcoming light. And it signaled that you know our journey was at an end and that we were where we were supposed to be, that soon we would be with our family. Um, And my family, they are some of the most loving, welcoming people you would ever meet. Uh, So I just always, you know, connected the two in my head. And so every time I see those lights in a home, even if it's not in Pennsylvania, it just um, fills me with this just, you know, sense of welcome and comfort. Uh, So it's really cool. And I started looking into it and, you know, kind of the history behind it recently. And it's a, it tends to be a kind of colonial tradition uh, that back in colonial times, uh, homes would be miles apart. And so they would put a light in the windows to signal that, you know, they were receiving guests or that neighbors were welcome to come and visit, or also as a signal to travelers who were weary or tired that they could stop for a meal, for a drink, or for the night. Um, and it's just kind of one of those cool things that people have just continued on doing. Um, I know that it's pretty common in the New England area. Um, I think it's very common in the Amish country here in Pennsylvania in the Lancaster area. Um, and I'm sure it's pretty common in some other areas too. Um, I'm not super familiar with any cultures or communities doing it in the South. Uh, so if you are aware of you know, little neighborhoods or communities that do the same kind of tradition, please let me know because I'm definitely interested in learning more about it and if you grew up in a house that did it and, you know, have a reason why your family did it. I'd love to hear from you.
So that's enough about us and where we are right now. Um, our guest tonight is Ruth Powers, and I've actually known her for quite a long time. Um, I came to Zach and you know suggested her as a guest to interview. Um, I think she's got a quite fascinating story, and she's got a you know lifetime of travel under her belt and a lot of experiences that people can learn from. Um, but I might be a little bit biased because she is my grandmother. Uh, but Zach was as excited as I was to ask her and so my grandma um, was immediately on board and so we had a really good talk with her and she's already agreed to come back on and share more stories uh, because really we didn't dive into as much of it as I would have wanted to in the time that we had Um, but she's got a lot of stories and a lot of experience to share. So Ruth Powers started hosting Japanese students in her home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1972. And what she was doing was hosting students who wanted to come to America to study. um, And she was just making sure that they had a safe, comfortable home. And she did this. uh, My mom was still in high school and living with them. And so it was kind of, you know, just a thing that my family grew up doing. Um, Even before that, my family and my grandmother will go into a little bit about this too, would host uh, military people as well. Um, And then friends would ask to host students as well. So over the years, it just kind of grew and expanded. And before too long, um, they needed to actually have a business name. So in 91, American Home Life International became a nonprofit. And that was founded by my grandmother and my grandfather. And it quickly expanded. Um, If you go to their website, AmericanHomeLife.org, it gives a really cool timeline uh, that you should check out. It kind of goes through um, their expansion. They've got students from all over the globe that they help find host families for. And um, it's just this really cool story of how my grandmother turned something that was a passion for her, which was ministering and helping people and uh, really reaching with people and connecting with people, and also her love of traveling into something that became her own um, her own career. And as Zach points out in the interview, she actually started working from home long before it was a common thing and long before it was really culturally accepted in our communities. Um, and she really drove it and turned it into a business and they have moved into you know brick and mortar building now but they do still have some remote workers as well um so it's just this really cool story and before i go into any more details about it we'll just go ahead and let ruth powers take you through her journey all right so welcome and thank you for sitting down and talking with us um, so we've already introduced you a little bit. We were just telling you that we record the segments separately. But can you go ahead and just in your own words tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are? Or- well, what can I tell about myself? Uh, my name is Ruth Powers, and uh, I have four of my own children and nine stepchildren, so 13 children altogether and 40 grandchildren and 37 great-grandchildren and I was an English high school English teacher for many years and then I worked with international students uh, probably over 25 years and we my husband and I started a program where we brought students here from many countries of the world and they stayed with Christian host families and 
Then we traveled to those countries to, to promote our program and to recruit students. And so that's been pretty much of my life. So this uh, company that you founded, it was American Home Life. And uh, when did you start this? It was American Home Life International. And we started working um, with students in the early 1970s. Actually, I um, had a student come and live with me, us in the 1971 for a year, and it worked out so well that we had another one the next year. And then friends wanted one. That's how it all began. And they were Japanese students. And little by little it grew, word of mouth. And then we became a nonprofit organization in the early 1990s, maybe 1991. And now we have uh, it in probably 25 states and uh, students from countries all over the world. So it has really, really grown since I retired. That's amazing. So you yeah. and Marvin kind of founded it unintentionally. We founded it. I tell people we found it took it to here, and they took off with it. They had big ideas, and so now it's probably one of the, if not number one, it's one of the top international student organizations in America. It's all over the United States. So was that the beginning of you working with international students, or did you do that in your job as a teacher also? I did, actually. Uh, I always had a love for international students. I really wanted to be a missionary in China or Japan, but it didn't work out for different reasons. And um, I always had a love to share my faith with international students who never heard of Christianity or never read a Bible. And so I wanted to do that, and God blessed it, and it just grew. I never, I don't think Marvin nor I had set out with the purpose of starting an international organization. It just happened. As um, The first time we went to Japan was 1984 to attend one of our former students' weddings. And I am telling you, I don't know how many addresses we came home with of students who wanted to come to Lancaster and live with a family. And so that's amazing. Yeah, we came home with probably 30 or 40 students who wanted to come. And so I said to my husband, Marvin, I cannot continue to work and do this and have all these teenagers. You know, I had about nine teenagers in the home. And I said, I can't do it all. And so I gave up my job and went into full-time from my home, from our bedroom. I just uh, called all my friends to see if they wanted to host. And so it just started out very naturally, very simply. And then when they hosted, the students had a wonderful experience and went back and told their brothers and sisters and cousins and friends. And soon we were getting lots and lots of letters. And so when you quit your job to start it and be in your own home and running your own business were you unsure or nervous about leaving your old job or did you just kind of know that that was the right path i knew that was the right path i had a piece and marvin did too because you know when i married your grandpa uh, i had written a list 
of requirements for a husband if I ever married. I did not intention to marry. But if I did, I had a list of, and I told the Lord, I will not marry anyone who doesn't fit this list. And one of them was a love for international students. And he loved them more than I did. I mean, he and your biological grandma had hosted army officers from lots of countries of the world. Yeah, it was a big part of their life. I mean, it was, it was a big that was part. just part of their home. That's yeah. right. It was a big part of their life. And so he was just ideal for me. I wanted a godly man who would lead our home spiritually. I wanted a man who made enough money that I didn't have to support him. And um, a man with a sense of humor. I mean, I really had a long list of... Uh, and a man who loved international students, and I wanted someone who loved my children, and my children loved them, him, equally, and that there was no friction or no, mm -hmm. uh, he met at all. <laughs> and so he was a large part of our starting American home life. I would say he, uh, he and I worked together. We worked really well together. So, and you said when you started American Home Life, you were working from home. So, you, it sounds like you were working remotely or working from home way before anybody else was doing that, which is now becoming more normal. That is becoming more normal, isn't it? Unfortunately, though, we um, were not in a uh, an area. It was uh, what's it called uh, that you could have a business. What's that called? Commercially zoned. Mm -hmm. We did not live in a commercially zoned area. And soon, more and more cars were coming to our house, and the mail was, you know, and people were questioning. And so that's why we decided to move out of our home and get an office. And so here we had our first office, and I was overwhelmed with everything. And so we hired our first person. And then we soon needed a second person, and then we soon needed a third and the wonderful thing about Grandpa, he didn't care if I was president of the United States, he would have scrubbed floors to get me there. I mean, there was no, he never felt competitive with me. He was happy because I was president, but he was the financial person, treasurer. Mm -hmm. And he wanted and He that. was a co-founder too, so he could have he easily said that he would be president. And right, and he didn't want to be yeah. president. You know, he wanted to be, and he did everything by hand. He didn't use a computer at all. As soon as the new people took over, believe me, <laughs> they went a whole different route. But um, I would say that I, to us, it was more of a ministry, personal, like a family, or the students and their parents, I thought of almost as family. I still think of that. Whereas the new people who took over are more business-oriented, much more. But they still seem to have a focus and drive on making sure that international students find safe homes Absolutely. with people that actually care. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's just such Absolutely. an amazing... And they still have all Christian host families. And uh, most of the students attend Christian schools, uh, high schools or colleges. And uh, many, many, many have become Christians who never yeah. even heard anything about, never met a Christian before. <clears throat> in fact, we have probably 10 pastors who are pastors in their countries. 
And Marvin and I worked mostly with Japanese and Korean and some Chinese and Spanish and French. But that was it. Now they're in India, South Africa. Um, they're everywhere. You know, lots of countries, a lot of the uh, Spanish-speaking countries. They have from Brazil, and they just had a group from Ukraine. And so they just... Uh, they have really, really grown. They have thousands of students coming every year now. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So when you were still a part of it, how often did you travel for American Home Life? Well, I traveled 18 times to Japan. And um, about every year or every other year, traveled to the Middle East. We started to get students from Israel We got um, and the West Bank. And traveled to Europe, I think four times, to uh, Korea, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China. <laughs> so we traveled, uh, and of course we went to France and to Spain and Austria and Germany, a lot of the European countries. And uh, we, I spoke in high schools, colleges, and um, tourists. Uh, visitor bureau, that type of thing, and uh, so now we never advertised in magazines or papers. It was all word, word of mouth. That's amazing. That's impressive. Yeah, and it just grew and grew and grew. God bless it. I give the praise. He just blessed it, and uh, students loved it. Not that we didn't have problems. There were always. What type, what type of problems? Well, the one year, an international student was on Halloween night, and he was an honor student. And the man told him to, I forget what word he used, but phrase. And the student didn't know. He was out Halloweening. And uh, he kept going towards the house, and the man shot and killed him. Oh, no. Now, that made the front page of the paper of other countries, because this was a top international student, and all of a sudden we had quite a few cancel, a lot of cancellations. That happened uh, when um, disease in China... um, SARS? SARS. Mm -hmm. When that came out, a lot of cancellations and then when there was a war there was a minor war not a major and again lots of and so many times we had cancellations but we still had a staff to pay and a big place to rent and lots of expenses vans we bought but then it picked up again it blew over and so that's the one problem the other we, you know, it's not easy to have someone live in your home from a different culture. And uh, I, probably one of my biggest jobs was being peacemaker between host families and students, helping them to understand each other. Because um, families live very differently. And these students sometimes are the only child in the family, or maybe two, and they're used to lots of attention. Mm-hmm. And some of our families have six and eight children. So they're big adjustments. Yeah, I'm sure. 
Yeah, and I spent a lot of time in um, counseling with host families and with students. Do you still keep in touch with any of the students that stayed with you or that you helped to place in other homes? I keep in a lot of touch with them. I just had a former student come from Japan uh, last week, and he flew in from Japan and spent one day with me and flew back the next day. Oh, wow. Uh, that was impressive. He's a pastor now. And he lived with us, actually, for a year or two, but he also lived with other families. He was here maybe six years. Some of our students stayed six or eight years. They went to high school for four years and then college for four years. So they had a different host families. And I keep in touch a lot. I have um, students coming, former students who are now married and have children. They are coming maybe four times this summer, four different ones are coming this summer and last summer oh my goodness all summer long they thought that I might not live and so that's why they all want to come to uh, make sure they see me before yeah. <laughs> it's too late but I'm surprising them and I'm still living <laughs> I know you're doing great <laughs> yeah I am and so I'm so thankful but it's wonderful to have them and these are almost all students, not all of them, but most of them, who became Christians through the program and who knew nothing before about Christianity. And now they're so thankful to have a personal relationship with Jesus that they keep in very close touch with me. Do you have any stories about going to weddings or baby showers or anything like that with any of these students? You mean going to weddings here? Or traveling to see them? or? Yeah, I think I have went to Japan to four weddings of wow. former students. And I was asked to speak at um, all the weddings. They always have speakers. And uh, I remember going to one where a former student who was a medical student, then he became a doctor, and he married a doctor. And his father was a doctor, and his two sisters were, and they married doctors. So all the doctors from the hospital come out. And I remember standing up and saying, I am really a minority here. I'm the only one who doesn't speak Japanese. And I think I'm the only one who's not a doctor. <laughs> and they laughed, I remember. And I learned enough Japanese to be able to say that in Japanese. I memorized it. I don't speak Japanese fluently, but I could learn to be able to say a few sentences. It's good to be here. I love your beautiful country. About how we are with Spanish. <laughs> Is that how you are? Yeah. 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 You know, just the things. And I would say to the parents, you have a lovely daughter. We enjoy her in Lancaster. You know, I met a lot of the parents of students. And so I could, and the parents didn't speak English. Mm -hmm. And so I could just basically say things that I could really communicate well. But the weddings were beautiful, very different. They uh, always have two, a change of outfits. One is total Japanese, and then the other is Western American gown, and they change in the middle. And so you see them with both. So it was very nice. And I went to a Christian wedding, but I also went to a couple Buddhist weddings. 
they were very different. <laughs> when you traveled to other countries, did you learn bits and pieces of those languages too, like French uh, or anything? Spanish, a little Spanish. I had studied uh, four years of Spanish in high school and four years in college, so I'd studied a lot of Spanish. But that was mostly written, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't speak it as well. And I also, that was years ago, <laughs> I forgot, but I picked it up. So I could speak some Spanish. And Marvin could speak French. He knew quite a bit of French. Oh, I never knew that. Mm-hmm. He learned French in the uh, military. He went to school and uh, because he lived in French-speaking countries. And so he had to learn it. So, and he picked up languages very quickly. I didn't pick up quite as quickly. Was he stationed in Africa? He was. He Hmm. was stationed in Tunisia. He was there for, I think, three years. John Paul was born there. A couple of the kids, I think, were born. And he was stationed, of course, in Korea for three years. And he was in Vietnam for a couple of years. So he picked up the languages. He picked up some Korean. So he was pretty well-traveled because of his military experience before you guys founded American Home Life. Um, Had you done a lot of traveling before that as well, or was American Home Life really your introduction to it? I would say that my parents took us on some trips. They took us to Cuba one summer when we were, I was probably in the seventh grade, and we went for a week's occasion in Cuba. They took us to Quebec, Canada and um, to Bermuda. So by the time I had graduated from high school, I was in Cuba, Bermuda, Canada. So not a lot, but my parents loved, my mother especially, loved to travel. So she passed that love on to you. She did. She did, absolutely. I often say that my love for international students started when I was young at home because my father owned a large business and he had probably 50 uh, migrant workers who couldn't speak English or who spoke little English. And my mother was in charge of them and I helped her. So we took them to the grocery store, we took them to the bank, we took them to movies and uh, I was never allowed to be alone with them because they were away from their wives. And uh, so my father was very strict, Mm -hmm. but I went with my mother, and uh, I learned a lot of Spanish then. That's one reason I studied Spanish in college. So you went to Cuba, I guess, before the Cuban Revolution? Yes, Hmm. yeah. And I was in the sixth grade, so that was, I would have been, but maybe I might have been 12. I was born in 36, so 48, probably around there, yeah. I liked it. It was a beautiful country. That's somewhere I'd like to go to. Yeah. But um, I think I had a love for internationals. And my mother loved international students. She, we used to have in our home students from Germany and Austria, I remember. So I, and then I became a Christian when I was a senior in high, or junior in high school. And so that, with my love for international students, that's why I wanted to go to the mission field and share how the Lord changed my life. I wanted to share that with uh Yeah, so even growing up, um, you had international students staying with you, so you just kind of kept the tradition. I kind of, yeah, I kept the, 
tradition for yeah. sure. Do any of your children host oh, international students? A student lot of them or? hosted. A lot of them were host families. When I was working full time, mm-hmm. I called my kids first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think almost all of them hosted. Uh, Lydia certainly did. Cindy did. David did. Now, those that lived out of the area didn't. Mm-hmm. But Dan hosted internationals in Illinois, and so did Doug. All my four children have, and I think with Marvin's, almost all of his have. So it's really uh, John Paul and Tammy not only hosted a Japanese girl, she's become their best friend, Aww. Meg. Oh, wow. Yeah, that I didn't was know still that. American home life. I didn't know that's how they met. That's really cool. And they're truly best friends. Yeah, Tammy and Meg travel together all the time. Yeah, and, all the time. Yeah. And she was a high school student. She came to live with And we have a number of situations like that. That's not unusual, where they literally become best friends with the host family. And the host families go over to visit them. And then for years, I took host families over to Japan and to Korea. Those were the two countries. And, yeah, you uh, said you went to Japan 18 times. 18 times. Is that your most visited country? or? Oh, that's the most for any country. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Korea, maybe I was there three times in Korea. And France, maybe four times or five. Because Chuck and Kathy live there. and uh, But I took groups of host families over for two weeks every other year for the last 20 years. We stayed with host families in Japan and with host families in Korea. So, wonderful experience. You really got to experience the city life and the real culture of the places you were Absolutely. visiting. And Staying with the Learning family. about their food and their traditions. And exactly right. That's why what I advertised when I talked about these trips, because they could get to see firsthand how Japanese live, how Koreans live, because they lived in the home. And we went from city to country, to Christian, to non-Christian, to Buddhist. And so we, they really experienced the whole culture. Mm-hmm. They were so surprised. I took one group. I think John Paul and Tammy went in that group. Um, a lot of the children have gone. And uh, they were surprised at the difference between Korea in Japan. Korea has, what, 40% Christians, I think, or 50, and lots of churches with crosses. Mm -hmm. Japan has one half of 1% who claim to be Christians. It's still one of the most unevangelized countries of the world, and so that's why my heart went to Japan. I think that may have risen since the tsunami, because when they had their tsunami, thousands of churches all over the world helped and brought food, brought uh, all kinds of things, and so many became Christians. So I think that's the reason maybe it's 3% now or 4%, but it's still low. So I loved it, absolutely loved it. When you love your work so much, it's not work. Yeah. It's fun. I don't know if you feel that way, but, you know, I, I loved it whether I got paid or not. So it's... Uh, I just really love international students. So what has been your favorite place to travel to? Probably Japan, because I, I say that's my second country. It's very safe. 
you can leave your luggage right in the middle, you know, that of the station. No one's going to touch it. Everyone there is so friendly. The what? Friendly. They're welcoming and warm. Very kind. They help you. If you're just standing, wondering which where to go, they come up and say, "May I help you? Are you lost?" You know. Yep. So I and of course I love Japan because that's where a lot of my friends are. My very closest friends are in are Japanese. So I do. Uh, I would say Japan. Yeah, I I loved it when we went. Um, I like to joke that I have a Japanese grandmother there because we were standing on a train station we actually got a little lost so we took a train going the wrong direction and then we had to get off at a random station somewhere and station is generous this is more like a concrete platform yeah. in the middle of the field because we were getting pretty far out into the rural areas oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. and uh we weren't prepared for the weather so it was colder than we had expected so i just had a thin little cardigan on and um, this little old lady came up to me, and she started basically scolding me in Japanese. Just like, you know, I, I'm assuming she was saying, you know, why don't you have a jacket? You should have something warmer on. And just like rubbing my arm and like checking on me and making sure I was Isn't okay. That sweet. She was Isn't just super cute. And she said like two things that we could understand. She said America, and I'm like, you know, signaling <laughs> to her. Yeah, 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 she knew that. And yeah. then she said Sakura, like... Asking if we came there, I guess, to see the cherry blossoms. Which we had. Oh, yeah. Which was yeah. a big part of the reason we went that time of year. So we yeah. April. Did you go in March mm-hmm. or April? It was April. April, yeah. yeah that is, I've gone in April. It's crowded. Yes. A lot of people. I like to go best into Japan in November, October, November. And that's what, the last trip I took, I took 29 people. So that was a lot. Was that part of American Home Life, or is that kind of a offshoot? You know what? After I retired from American Home Life, I had done it while I was president of American Home Life. I took groups of host families. And it all started out where a family said, boy, we'd love to go to Japan to visit our student who lived with us for a year or two and to meet her family. Mm-hmm. But they just didn't know quite how to. And I thought, you know, I should take a group. We had thousands of those families. And so it started while I was working for American Home Life. But when I retired, the new president, Keith, did not want to do it. Oh, wow. Yeah, he just, they did not want to. It took, it takes a year's work to prepare. Yeah, they just don't have the time. or No, and they just felt they didn't have the time. And that really wasn't their main... um, Focus. Focus. It was students coming here. And so I continued to do it up until I found out I had cancer. Even then when I had cancer... You still went. I went. (laughs) Against everybody's wishes. For two weeks. And uh, that was 19... Or... um, 2015, so two years ago. I think you proved everybody wrong because you went and you're fine now. That's right. That's right. Well, the doctor told me, I did not know I had cancer before I went. I knew I had something seriously wrong. I didn't know why. I suspected it could be. But I've never even smoked one cigarette in my life, and so I always thought of cancer as smokers, people. And I didn't know until I had it that there are two kinds of lung cancer. One is non-small cell, which I have, which people don't smoke, mm-hmm. and the other is small cell. And small cell or smokers' can, uh, lung cancer, that's much more aggressive. I'd be dead now if I had that. But uh, the non-small cell is not quite as aggressive. So when you took these tour groups, 
Um, did you stay with host families then? Uh-huh. In the, okay. Stay with we stayed through no more than three nights. That was my policy, and we traveled all through the country. Three nights in Tokyo, three nights in Yokohama, three nights in Osaka, three nights in Hiroshima, and then we ended it. Each tour became better, as I learned, mm-hmm. and um, we ended it by staying in a beautiful traditional hotel where everyone wore bathrobes the whole time. Yeah. And they had maybe 12 onsens. Do you know what onsens you get in the water and just sit and relax and it's healthy for you mm-hmm. outside and inside. It's onsen hotel. And one of our students was a daughter of the owner. And even the uh, emperor goes to this onsen. It's very famous. How do you spell the name of the hotel? O-N-O. Onsen. O-N-S-E-N. I'm pretty sure it's... Um, this is called, I forget the name of it now, of the onsen hotel. But it's in uh, Kariazawa, if you know where that is, a very beautiful area, mountainous area. And the last two days, we would just relax and sit around and talk with each other and so it was very very nice that was a cultural experience and it sounds really nice to be staying with you know host families and getting to experience the more residential areas of japan too and when we went we stayed with you know yuko and alex and yeah. that's like the highlight of our trip was getting mm-hmm. to see you know how they live and getting to meet yuko's mom and all that and then we stayed with a another friend of ours and they were in this tiny yeah natsuko and we were in like a tiny little apartment but it was still really interesting to see yeah it is i think it's uh i i love staying with the families that's how i became close to a lot of the families okay so if you had one piece of advice for people who wanted to travel more and maybe follow in your footsteps and do the type of thing that you've done throughout your life what do you think that piece of advice would be (laughs) <laughs> just what anything that pops into your head is fine. It's, I know we didn't prepare you for that question, but yeah, you know, I I'm not sure. I would have different pieces of advice. I think one is, I think you have to be a chance taker and um, not rigid, but be willing to try new things, new foods, new sleeping on the floor or whatever and um, and you have to be a chance taker you don't know what the families will be like you don't know what you know you're going into unknown territory and um, of course as a Christian I would commit it to the Lord the trips and God really blessed we never had an accident we never had sickness well we had some that were sick but not really And um, I think that we shared the gospel throughout the countries we went. We gave Bibles out. We took every one of our people who went took Bibles to give and tracts, and we shared. I'll never forget when we visited the biggest Buddha in um, Nara, and everybody was bowing, bowing, bowing. And so we had a tour guide, and one of our people said, May I ask you a question? She said, sure. She said, does he hear their prayers, this Buddha? And she said, no. He said, does she see them? Does he see them? She said, no. 
And she said, well, our, one of our tourists said, well, our God hears and he sees us. And she said, you have the better God. And she was a Buddhist you know, tour guide. And she said, I'd like to know more about him. And so that, the, you know, people were hungry to know more about how you can have a living God. And so that, all through Japan, we found people were open. They wanted, they just never hear. And so they wanted to know more. So those are the, I'd say, be flexible, be willing to try anything and do anything, and be willing to learn from them, learn their culture, not just share our culture. But I have learned so much from my Japanese. I don't even wear shoes in the house. You know, I, I just think a lot of their culture, they have a wonderful thing. I think the learning from new cultures and the learning while you're traveling is something that a lot of people forget to do. You know, they want to go and take their pictures and yeah. get their souvenirs, but they forget to learn and experience it as it is. I agree. I always have said I learned as much from them as they learned from me. You know, we learn from each other. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as Zach and I did, and I'm definitely looking forward to having uh, Grandma back on the show in the future uh, to share more of her stories of travel. Uh, she said she has a couple of embarrassing ones to share, so we're definitely looking forward to getting those. Uh, if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to share, feel free to reach out to us, and we will try to cover them in the next interview. Yeah, and be sure, as always, to give us a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter, if I'm getting that right. I don't even remember. But um, search us there, Thinking Liberty, or our handles for both are ListenTL. And also, we wanted to just really thank everybody for giving us likes and reviews on iTunes. We see those rolling in. I know sometimes it's a little bit delayed where you guys will leave the review and we won't see it for a few weeks. But we're starting to see them, and we're seeing reviews, and we're just really grateful for that. And thank you to everybody, and please keep leaving them, because that can only help us more. Yeah, and I mean, they they really mean a lot to us. Um, We just had one where she was talking about how we are giving ideas and tips on how to leave a freedom travel-oriented lifestyle, and that's really, you know, what we're trying to do, and so it's great that our listeners are able to pick up on that and able to relate that to their own lives. So uh, when we read that, I was very touched. So thank you guys for leaving those. Yeah, well, I think that's about it for this week. Um, We'll see you next week with another episode. Thanks for listening to Thinking Liberty. Liberty. Subscribe to the show for free on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher at thinkingliberty.com. You'll also find detailed show notes pages, articles by Zach and Sarah, and more. We'll see you next time.